right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 49. This is the intro for episode 49. I have with me today um, Jason Lindgren and James Alfred. You may remember James. He's been on the show before. He runs the blog Sage Sigma Unbound and covers a lot of stuff, but he does it in an interesting way because he doesn't necessarily jump off the occult bridge so much as take what's available to the public to know about a thing and then correlate it back to the encoding of so much of the media, movies, and other things that we see. Um, As a matter of fact, for episode 50 next time around, I'm going to have both these guys back and we're going to take apart the movie Prometheus, which is basically the Luciferian story or the story of Lucifer. Um, The myth of Prometheus and Lucifer are basically the same things, but we will go at that um, for episode 50. This episode we cover, well, let me back up a little bit. James emailed me about a week ago, and he had gone back and looked at a clip I made about the Comet 67P, also known as the Rosetta Philae mission, where the European Space Agency fraudulently told the world that they landed on a comet. This is a lie. It's a provable lie, and uh, we, we delve into that. But what's really interesting for me now is as we get into this, and all this time has gone by since I made that clip, since they made the fraud announcement that they were landing on a comet going 84,000 miles an hour, so many millions of miles away, and all this other ridiculous nonsense, um, we found, or Jason found in his research, other people who had gone at the very same questions and pointed out the very same fraud in a slightly more scientific way than I did when I initially made the clip when I was basically just loading the gun and popping off the obvious fraud and pointing it out. People have gone back and done the math on a bunch of this stuff. As an example, a radio transmission couldn't have made it to the supposed lander landing on this supposed comet that's eighty going 84,000 miles an hour. They couldn't have given it a command they would have had to wait 25 to 27 minutes. Uh, most of the math agrees on those numbers, and I think I used 25 back when I did the clip, um, doing the rough math just to kind of roughly calculate how long it would take a transmission to make it from supposed Earth to the supposed spacecraft, and it's all nonsense. But there's more here, because James took the time to delve into the encoding of Egyptian myth. All these space agencies are playing the same game. So many of the missions are encoded with Egyptian myth, Greek myth. As the Chinese are getting into it, they've got their Chinese myth with the the silly rabbit, I forgot his name, that sits under a cinnamon tree on the moon and all this other nonsense. They are all playing the same game, but they're not just encoding uh, occult myth and kind of Masonic ideas. They're encoding numerically all the way through every mission you've ever seen from any space agency, and it is all locked to the calendar, or you could say encoded to the calendar. As we started running through Jason's research on the timeline for the Rosetta Filet, um, I was just sitting there listening and working out the dates real quickly. What it comes down to is the Comet 67P is heavily encoded to 9-11. The minute we see 9-11, we, we know what nonsense we're looking at. It was disgu- And here's another thing that will come out in this episode. 
Initially, when I did my research, it was claimed that this comet was discovered on September 11, 9-11, and I believe it was 1969, late 60s anyhow. Um, but now, uh, all this time has gone by, and when Jason did his research, or James, I forget which, they're trying to obfuscate. They're trying to hide the fact that that was the case, and they're actually fabricating new dates to try to scrub away the taint of 9-11 they have encoded, but there's no getting away from it. There's plenty of dates that we can break right down and get back to September 11. It never ends. Anyhow, this is a very interesting episode. Uh, let's go ahead and jump in. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 49. I have with me today Jason Lindgren, and you guys may remember James Alfred. Um, I've had him on the show before. He runs the uh, the blog, which is oh man, I'm drawing a blank. Jump in, James. What's the name uh, of the blog? Sage Sigma Unbound blog. Sorry yes. about that, man. I've been no up problem. since two in the morning because I had to do an airport run and all the flights kept getting canceled. Um, anyhow, we've got quite an interesting show here. Uh, I was hanging out about a week ago and James sent me an email about his latest blog, which he does from time to time. And it was kind of covering ISIS and the OSIRIS uh, thing a lot. But what I appreciate from from James is that so many of us try to break these things down in a purely occult manner. And quite often what I see James doing is taking the stated myths that are put out for the public to consume, um, the stated accepted mythical histories that we have got from wherever they came from, and he breaks it down according to that. And I think that's an interesting way to do it because anytime you can go back and look at a given myth that we grew up with in school or learned about in college, whatever the case may be, um, it's part of the construct with which we live. So truly, if there is any value or secrets hidden in these myths, it has to be embedded in what they're putting out, um, temporarily revealing what was previously hidden in a way. But anyhow, without any further ado, I'm going to kick this straight over to Jason. We've got one heck of a list to get through, and uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things. Panspermia, uh, the nonsense comet landing 67P, I think was the name of the comet. Uh, you may remember the Filet Rosetta mission, which I did a clip on. Uh, you can go on my channel and, uh, and review that clip clip where I kind of break down the obvious points of why it's fraud, besides the fact that Comet 67P was discovered on 9-11, I think it was 69, not sure if I got the year right, it's right around there, it was in the late 60s, but anyhow, Jason, take it away. All right, so this is going to connect in with all of the, the space fraud work we did. Uh, this one's going to be faking a comet landing, a how-to guide. So <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be focusing on the, the Rosetta Philae mission, but all the insane symbolism and all the things that uh, we always see going on around these kinds of missions. And it's not just NASA anymore. This is an ESA mission, the European Space Agency. And, of course, uh, they're kind of doing the same stuff. So uh, we went through James' uh, uh, post uh, on his blog that is all about this. And the first thing I noticed that he had a picture up, um, there was a poster for the Rosetta Philae mission. And the, it just jumped out at me that, that it has great resemblance to the early 20th century socialist images. Like it was that style artwork. And I'm sure it has a name. I just don't know what it is. But it's that whole, you know, Third Reich looking kind of thing. Um, communist, early communist stuff. Um, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know, these things played to great effect, too. I mean, there there is a whole course of study on the way the supposed communist bloc of Russia used art like this. But anyhow, go ahead, James. Yeah, definitely. It's got a very, very, um, I don't know, early 20th century 
look to it, a very odd style. But uh, yeah, getting back to the actual mission itself, I um, I basically used Crow's video that he had published, I believe, last year as a starting point for this. And the thing that struck me with Crow's work, the one image that really caught my eye was the idea that there's an image of the comet that more or less replicates the image of the uh, island of Philae. And the two look almost identical when you place them side by side. So that was more or less the starting point for me to kind of dig into this this mission. And, yeah, and we should elaborate for the folks that ha have not yet seen that clip that I made. Um, basically, this is what happened. Um, I, I was thinking about doing a clip to point out the fraud of comets in general, that comets are not what you think they are. Um, I used ISON as an example because I couldn't find it. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. Uh, in my view, ISON... Ice, I saw on the comet I saw on was completely made up out of whole cloth. It was fraud. Um, but to get on with it, I almost didn't do the clip. And then Croet and some of my friends said, do the clip. And as I sat down to get ready to do the uh, invest, you know, the research work uh, before I made the clip, I turned around and I said to my wife, what do you suppose the odds are that they couldn't resist making one of the views we'll get of the comet match the Philae Island it's na it's named after. And I just knew this was the kind of game they play. And so that is the genesis of the image. And of course they did. And if you watch the clip, you'll understand that when they named uh, the mission and all these other things, they had no way to know by their own accounting what the comet would look like. So it's clearly fraud. Um, mm -hmm. And that and that sets aside the whole 9-11 thing. Anytime you hear anything from a space agency or a news agency that involves 9-11, you better understand their shenanigans. But anyhow. You mm -hmm. know, Kiri, out of curiosity, what was the deal with uh, ISON? You couldn't locate it anywhere? No, here's what happened. <clears throat> ISON, you know, this was back when I was still hadn't thrown out 100% of what I've thrown out now. And um, I had been watching Mars, and I understood that seasonally, over 36 months or something, of course, 666 encoded, uh, Mars does, in fact, change color. Um, and I knew this from observation, but there was this supposed comet going by the planet. So I was still stuck in the mind trap, considering if this was a possibility. So as we were told this was going to be the comet of the century and we could see the encoding for ISON all over the place, channels like Jungle Surfer, I think Dave J, there, there were a bunch of channels out there showing how ISON was being encoded across everything from like rugby teams to media, all kinds of stuff. Um, we were even seeing it in to Toyota ads, but we were told it was going to be the comet of the century and so of course i wanted to image it and as it was supposed to be approaching naked eye visibility which it never did by the way not only was it not the comet of the century it never reached naked eye visibility i woke up for like five days in a row at like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning something like that and i was trying to locate it as the days went on um, I was beginning to question, what am I doing wrong? You know, do I have the wrong coordinates? And I was checking everything. I was checking Stellarium. I was checking NASA. I was checking websites, these other people that were supposedly imaging it. And yet all the images, no two ISON images looked the same. And I knew that wasn't right because I'd been paying attention to comets since the 90s and can ID almost any comet from the last, I don't know, century or two, or not two, century that's been imaged. Um, so what happened finally is I got fed up a number of days into getting up you know, early in the morning, I put a wide field lens on my camera, set it on a tripod and opened the shutter for, I don't know, five or six or seven minutes. I forget how long, but a long enough time to pick up any light that was there. And it wasn't there. Here's the rub. 
on the day that I did this, um, I knew that I could detect it because I believe, if I remember correctly, the planet Mars was there and the star Regulus, which is very bright. And so the comet was supposed to be right there. And with those two sky markers, you can't really go wrong. You center up the camera on those two bright spots. You do what you do. There was nothing there. And then anyone can go back and look at the nonsense of how this comet came into the sun and did it break up? Did it not break up? Did something make it around the sun? Did it actually leave? Did it burn up? Nobody seems to know what happened to the imaginary comet Ison. And that's what I used as the basis to start to demonstrate that comets are not what you think they are. But anyhow, back to you. Was anyone able to photograph this who wasn't, uh, you know, part of a mainstream official organization? You know, I don't know because I never spend time trying to defame people or debunk people. Um, that's not what I do. Uh, I did see people who were claiming to image it, but here's the other part of the rub. As I mentioned, I can look at, I don't know if I still could, I probably could do a few, but at, there was a point um, where I was so into astronomy in the 90s moving forward that I could look at any imaged comet, uh, major comet, and I could ID it. And what you tend to find out about comets is the ones that don't supposedly break up or burn out or, you know, something happens with the sun. They keep that look so you can kind of tell what you're looking at. Almost... A hundred percent of the comets I was familiar with before ISON were white and sometimes had shades of blue in them. Occasionally, you might see a, a hint of yellow or something, depending on how it was imaged. When ISON came, comets started being green. And I, I rolled this over in my mind. I said, is the way we're imaging, what, what's making all these comets green? But it, I came to understand because at the same time, the Ebola nonsense was right around one. I forget which one and whether it was Ebola or one of the other nonsense plagues. Um, all the green that they had in, the, uh, in every media coverage of events like Ebola or West Nile or these other things. There's green, like the band Poison from the 80s used. Get it? Poison green. It's the same, same kind of encoding. But these comets were green. So then there was another comet, and I can't recall the name, and I have this posted on my channel as well, where I did the exact same thing, where I pointed my camera straight up, having good landmarks. I think, if I remember, Orion was close. So I knew if I centered up the constellation Orion and did a wide field with seven or eight minutes of the shutter open, and sure enough, I picked up a green blotch. So there again... Uh, I imaged a comet, and it was green, and it didn't look like a comet. It looked like a fuzzy green spot, and I've forgotten the name of that comet because by that time, I no longer bought into comets. They're not what they're telling you they are. Um, they're just more lights in the sky, whatever that means, but my point is that's when I started to question, is it my imaging system? I imaged it with more than one camera. I messed with settings every time the image came back green, and people can go back. I imagine if they did a search on my channel for comets, those both those clips would come up, and sorry for the long-winded response, man. No, that's a great setup for what we're going to talk about now, because if, if uh, this whole thing with uh, the Rosetta mission, if this is fraud as well, I mean, it, it, this goes hand-in-hand hand with everything else, you know? So, next thing I noticed... Uh, and more another Egyptian thing. Uh, this is tied in with the Horizon missions. Well, the the name Horizon etymologically comes from Horus rising. So, right. Just a little point there. Yeah, definitely. And it uh, the Horizon mission was begun in 1993. It was part of the Cornerstone mission <laughs> of the European Space Agency's Horizon 2007 science program. Uh, the end goal to all of this was to develop an orbiter and a lander that would be instrumental in unraveling the mysteries of an icy mini-world in space, the comet. So that's more or less where all of this kicks off from. 
Well, you know, that's it. That this is an interesting idea too, because all through my young comet life, like in the nineties, when I, I, I got my first really good telescope right around the time Hale Bob came to be. And there's a whole story behind that too, because I was so excited to have a good scope and there was a comet that I could see with my eyes. And I went out and looked at it through the scope and I was like, damn, that, that's disappointing. But not only is it disappointing, it's not moving. It's traveling at the same speed everything else is rotating over your head. That's the first thing I noticed. So I went and read up, and of course they tell you, you know, low magnification is better. Use binoculars, use your eyes, and that's a true thing in most cases for comets. You use binoculars and, and these other things. But back then, the, what they were pushing in sky and telescope and all the sources I was looking at is that comets are ice balls. Well, everybody's seen the supposed 67P, the Rosetta mission, where the the supposed orbiters coming in and it shows pictures of this thing glowing like the sun mm -hmm. with a vapor trail when they get there there's none of that when they get there it doesn't look like an ice ball it looks like a meteorite or something that we saw from some other movie but that's a key point to make here because even the idea of what a comet is has shifted away from what it traditionally was an ice ball, basically a dirty snowball flying through space. So we're supposed to buy into the fact that there's a massive dirty snowball up there and the sun is melting it, which is why it has a tail. This thing's going to come zipping by us, whip around the sun. If it's a periodic comet, like say Halley's, it's going to be back in, I don't know, IN, Zion years, 77 years or what, maybe it's 76, I don't remember. Um, it'll, it'll have a period and it'll keep coming back around. But it goes to show you, um, I don't see anywhere now, uh, like in Sky and Telescope and the things that I monitor, where they're pushing comets as dirty snowballs anymore. Interesting. Very interesting. And James, did you say it was called the Cornerstone Missions or something like that? Yeah, the Cornerstone <laughs> Mission. Very, very uh, key term there, Cornerstone, yes. Did they did they have their trowels and then the masons in there to <laughs> yeah. set the Cornerstone? Yeah, exactly. Uh, did they stamp their 33 on anything? I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe yeah, just a big rich. old G. And yeah. it goes it goes to show you guys we're talking about the ESA here not NASA we're talking about the European Space Agency so this underscores the, the club that we're talking about um, all these space agencies are pushing the same fraud ESA is pushing fraud in the same way China is pushing fraud, telling everyone they're on the moon right now. And the same way NASA's pushed fraud on almost everything it's done as far as I can tell. I think that's a key point to make here because we do see the European Space Agency do some things, but in my mind, this was kind of like one of the first ones where it was really out there in the media being pushed, oh, we're landing on a comet. So there's mm -hmm. that to consider. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So next up, we have that it was launched on the Ariane. I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation or Ariane rocket. I, yeah, I think it's Ariane. So what's the, what's the meaning of this name? The Greek meaning is Holy One. And the French uh, meaning, it's a it's a French baby name. So hmm. in French, it's very holy. So, it, you know, it's obviously <laughs> derivative. So, you know, they, la they launched their uh, Egyptian rocket on a, or excuse me, their e Egyptian probe on a very holy rocket. Carrying Osiris cameras and getting ready to land on the Isis temple, as I pointed out in my thing. But almost certainly this name, Ariane, is pushing the Arian idea. Um, you got anything on that, James? Yeah, definitely. You know, the I believe it was the end of February. I think if you look at the timeline of this mission, it was supposed to be launched on February 26th of uh, 2004, but it was pushed back until March 2nd of 2004. And I digging around a little bit, it, all roads sort of lead back to the idea of Jack Parsons and this idea of Babylon, the goddess Babylon. 
uh, March 2nd happened to be the 58th anniversary of the commencement of this uh, infamous Babylon working. Um, as we get going into this, Babylon really is just another representation of the idea of ISIS. It's the uh, the great scarlet woman, uh, the, the woman of the cat, the great goddess of the sphinx, so forth. And we'll see image of this later on as we go through the mission. Um, and, and a lot of people I know are aware of who Jack Parsons is, but for anybody who might not be, he was a former rocket scientist. He's a founding mentor of JPL. You see JPL all over these sort of missions with in terms of images, in terms of motion pictures, so forth. Um, and this guy was apparently a brilliant rocket scientist, failed, and became a motion picture special effects guru. Uh, <clears throat> he later blew himself up in a garage while uh, attempting to create a homoculi. So the idea here is that um, on this, so you have on the March 2nd, it's a really interesting quote. Jack uh, Parsons was tied hip and hip with uh, L. Ron Hubbard back in that time period. And it's pointed out that on March 2nd of 1946, well, previous to this, they had been attempting to evoke an elemental or a familiar to assist in these magical workings. He showed up on the 2nd of March 1946 and stated that he had channeled a message from a savage and naked, beautiful, redheaded woman with green eyes that was riding a cat like a beast. The quote <laughs> that you can find online is, light first flame at 10 p.m. March 2nd, 1946. The year of Babylon is 4,063. So an interesting start to this whole mission, March 2nd. It does have a little bit of a tie back to this ISIS construct that we're going to continue to see over and over as we go forward. So, I mean, I mean, we got to make a couple comments. I'm guessing he probably blew himself up on uh, September 11th. That's a joke, by the way. But <laughs> act actually, maybe I should look before I call it a joke. But um, as, as everyone might be aware, he was good buds with L. Ron Hubbard, who was hovering around the beginnings of JPL. L. Ron mm -hmm. Hubbard was a sci-fi writer in the same way many of the other sci-fi writers of the relatively modern era invented things like satellites, telecommunications. Um, I don't know, James, can you add some of the sci-fi guys who pushed all this nonsense? Yeah, you have Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, you have Isaac Asimov. There it is, Isaac Asimov, yeah. Um, and then the one who wrote... Gene Roddenberry, sure. Who's uh, the one that wrote Dune, Frank Herbert? I mean, they're all in the same time period. Yeah, they're all. Yeah, J Jules Verne. I mean, we're looking at a lot of space history having been invented by basically science fiction writers. And so L. Ron Hubbard was on the outskirts of uh, JPL's creation, good friends, I believe, with Jack Parsons. So you can understand the, the little sci fi story James just told you about. Tigers with glowing green eyes and women with red hair or whatever it was, um, put it into context, you know, put it into context. So there it is. Jack Parsons died on June 17th, 1952 in Pasadena, California. Well, hell bells, man. He missed it by a few months. What's he want to go blow himself up on a normal day for? And actually, I'm sure if we looked, there must be something behind uh, the day of his death. And, and before we uh, forget about these cats, let's let's remember the fact that all of these guys were heavily heavily into occult practices like massively this is what they were about mm -hmm. right but you know i'll preface some of what we're going to talk about here because i have a feeling many of the people listening you know they're going to hear us talking about osiris the myth of osiris isis which of course is ubiquitous in our age i mean we even have a whole fake terrorist organization named isis well i guess obama liked to call them isil sometimes because too many people were on to the isis nonsense or just is sometimes as well they kept changing the name to throw people off yeah because they got getting caught with their pants down with their egyptian nonsense their masonic nonsense what you're looking at in my view 
is some reflection of the human condition in these myths, this triune myth. In the case of the Egyptian one we're going to talk about, we're basically talking about Father Horus, Sister Wife Isis, and Son Horus. Did I say Horus first? I'm sorry. Father uh, Osiris, Mm -hmm. Sister Wife Isis, and Son Horus. That's the triune deity makeup in this supposed Egyptian set that is so heavily used by the Masonics. Um, what we're looking at here, in my view, is very likely just an aspect, an occult aspect of what human beings are and what they can be. I think that's pretty much what it is. It's hard to describe, but for everyone listening, what we tend to do in the modern era when we hear ISIS is we try to relate it to something concrete. You know, we try to figure out what's ISIS. Um, is it this thing? Is it that object? Was it something from ancient in? So I want to try to put it out there on the table that what we're looking at is almost like aspects of nature in a way. Um, and there is more to it than that. But I want to put it out there because you see the name ISIS attached to the BS terrorism thing. You see it attached to all these missions. ISIS is constantly around. We can associate ISIS all day long with the Statue of Liberty and so much of what went on on the uh, demolition of those two buildings on 9-11. So just start to frame out in your mind that they are echoing some aspect of nature that has a bearing on what it is to be a human being. And I can't really explain it much better than that. Mm-hmm. And also in respect to um, the idea of this mission on March 2nd, um, before we keep going, I kind of wanted to do some side notes regarding some of the key names in this mission. Uh, we've got, you know, of course, the Rosetta. Officially, the name was used because it was a, a metaphor for what the actual Rosetta Stone was. Um, the Rosetta Stone allegedly was discovered near Alexandria by a French soldier who was contingent to Napoleon's Egyptian campaign. So here we go with uh, an interesting aspect of history. It was discovered on July 19th of 1799. Um, Didn't look into that date, but I'm guessing there's probably an interesting photograph in Rosetta's timeline related to this date. Uh, There's also the Rosetta Stone, for anybody who knows, was considered to be kind of the first decipher code. It had a set of Egyptian hieroglyphics that were attached to Greek alphabet and that allowed um, 18th, I'm sorry, 19th century folks to more or less begin to decipher and unravel the mysteries of Egyptian mysteries. And like the stone, the Rosetta mission was put in place to help decipher the ancient building blocks of our solar system. So that's the first key piece is the Rosetta stone. Uh, Philae is also uh, considered to be a decipher code. It was named in tribute to the Philae Philae obelisk that was found on the island of Philae in Egypt. This was discovered in 1815, and like the Rosetta Stone, was an Egyptian Greek decipher key. Um, It was later moved to the UK by an interesting guy that I did some research on. His name was Giovanni Battista Belzoni, a.k.a. the Great Belzoni. Now, this guy, (laughs) apparently, he seems to have a history of basically just ripping off Egypt and smuggling stuff back to UK royalty and UK wealth. Um, and of he's course, a, he's a lord, isn't he? Uh, he was, I don't know if he was a lord, but I did find that he became a Freemason and he was actually initiated into the Knights Templar after all of these uh, thefts that he was providing for the right. royals. He, he had he had some great lawn ornaments for some reason. He'd just go over there and bring them on home and throw them in the front yard, I guess. Yeah, he's an interesting character in all of this. Um, and he was rewarded a- appropriately. So uh, the next thing is, of course, as, as Crow had mentioned, the Osiris Cam. Um, again, this just happened to be a acronym for a very technical piece of equipment that was on this craft. It was called the Optical 
spectroscopic and infrared imaging spectrometer. Osiris. <laughs> that, that's a coincidence there. I just boy, love how these you. things work out so nicely. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's really amazing. It is. And then uh, finally, the, the comments, the key comments that are going to be put in place here, we're going to visit asteroid 2867 Steins. That was discovered on November 4th of 1969 by a Russian astronomer. Asteroid 21 Lutetia. Uh, this was discovered on November 15th, 1852, and was named after the original name of the city of Paris. And then finally, the end game, Comet 67P. Uh, I am probably going to butcher this, Shermuava Garasimenko. This uh, was actually discovered on September 20th, 1969, but the source document that uh, it was a photograph, and that photograph was taken on September 11th of 1969 and led to a discovery of another comment known as Comas Sola. So, so, so are- let, let me comment real quick there, James. I, I'm almost certain what happened there was they floated out the September 11th nonsense, and then they backtracked it and began to rewrite history. Um, because when I did the lookup originally, it was pretty clear the discovery was on September 11th. And since, I have looked a couple times and found what you found. So it almost seems like they're trying to scrub a little September 11th off their whole nonsensical mission here. They could very well be. And when we get into the OSIRIS-REx, we'll see that the comet that is the eventual target of the OSIRIS-REx mission, which again is in line with all this, was also discovered on September 11th of 1999. So I think the date's there. I think it's a legitimate date that possibly was edited after the fact. Right. And you're going to get, what's the name of the crane? You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the Bennu. Yep. Yeah, the, Bennu. So you, you're going to have to address that too, because it's complete nonsense. These acronyms that just happened to make up Osiris. By the way, that camera had four megapixels, um, and something, and that was done in the 2000s. They already had professional six meg megapixel cameras in in the 1990s. So you can see the game of that. And if I remember correctly, that was supposedly a hundred million dollar camera. But that's that's wanna, that right there is is just nuts. Like, there's no way you spend $100 million on a bloody 4-megapixel camera. I don't care if it was, you know, back then. They could have pushed the envelope, you know? Well, what's ridiculous about it is I heard a lot of people, like, when I started bad-mouthing this, all these NASA lovers that need to wake up in the morning and defend NASA for some reason, um, began saying, well, they got to send all that data back, and you can't have all these megapixels. And to that, I say, poppycock. We're talking flower genitals here. You know, these things are going out in space, we're told. They got nothing but time. And in the same way, when they did the fraud Pluto mission and the first images we got back were not even close to what I was shooting in the backyard, um, the excuse was, oh, we're just doing these crappy images because we can get them back quick to show you something. And then over time, you start seeing the light wave and the 3D program images coming back that are uh, more impressive. But in the same way, if you put a really good camera on something, all you're talking about is waiting longer for something to transmit, if that's even what was going on, which it's not. I'm just shooting down the article or the the argument that they're using here. The idea that you would go to a comet for the first time and land on it, which is complete nonsense, and we can prove it pretty much, um, and only take a four megapixel camera with you is ridiculous. I mean, it's ludicrous. And then, like Jason said, to spend a hundred million dollars, 10 of these things cost a billion dollars. I mean, that Mm -hmm. puts it into context. And of course, the name of the damn camera is Osiris. So Mm -hmm. anyhow, I forgot who I cut off. I think I cut you off, James. I'm sorry. Now, wait a second. You're saying that the claim was that the data would get here faster with smaller images. So so the radio waves were too heavy to send back. Is that is that what it is? 
Yeah, these people that come to the channel and they'll have like the NASA logo as their avatar um, or they'll have like a space shuttle. You know, they're just either shilling for NASA or they love NASA, you know, beyond belief because they're going to spend their day defending uh, everything NASA does. They were making the argument, well, of course, it's only four megapixels because they got to transmit that data all the way back. Um, that was the argument being made by these people, whoever they were. So so radio waves travel faster or slower depending upon the amount of data i'm not sure if that no 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 let me let me rephrase that so so let me how can i mentally i'll create an abstract mental image so say you've got a piece of typing paper that's completely gridded out and say there's 50 grids across and about 600 grids down or something like that the idea would be that each little grid each little square in the grid is a piece of data and so imagine going left to right, row by row down as the data gets sent back to Earth. So more megapixels would, would imply more blocks of data, which would require more time to transmit it back. So nothing to do with the speed of the transmission, just the sheer amount of data the transmission has to carry. In other words, it's about like bandwidth on your computer, right? If you've got really good bandwidth, you could watch two or three videos at once. If you've got really poor bandwidth, you could maybe only watch one. It's a similar thing because the data is taking longer to get into your computer. I don't know how well I described that. <laughs> well, no, that, that sounds much better than like – because it almost sounded like that they were saying nonsense that completely violated the laws of physics, you know? Well, you know, I, I, I will never understand why people so, you know, pig-headedly um, – defend NASA in the way they do, um, because a lot of these arguments are sound. You don't have to buy them. You can challenge them. You can say, I'm not accepting that if you like. But to get upset and defend it really shows you that there's a there there, because that is a thumbprint of programming when people become upset because a thing that is challenged that has really nothing to do with them. It's just about a belief system at that point. But anyhow, I'm pretty sure I stepped on James like 15 minutes ago. Yeah, I did no, too. No problem. So a, no problem. Go ahead, James. No problem. No, I just wanted to more or less put some of these key names out there. It's like a play, right? I mean, you've got key characters. You've got we're going to see key symbols coming up. Um, all of this relates back to this idea of Osiris and Isis, which um, eventually leads to the idea that Isis is ultimately just a metaphor for deception and fraud. So I'm just setting up the cast of characters for the uh, the play that's about to unfold. Can can you let's let's do the ISIS thing because I went at it to kind of show how the overall architect seems to be related to almost like a Buddhist or an Eastern philosophy thing where it's aspects of nature that has to do with what a human being is and can be. But what you're doing is breaking down verbatim the meanings that have been attached to the character in the same way the Norse god Loki always causes trouble. Um, those are stated in the myths and the things we can know about Loki that have been put out to the people for however long that's been going on. So just break down what you're able to deduce about ISIS using simply the published accounts of these myths. Uh, okay, so for the, the first one that is commonly told is the idea of ISIS stealing the word of God. Now, this is a story, and I don't know where this originated from. But it would definitely be from ancient Egypt. I don't know if it's a Greek translation or so forth. But it's the idea that Ra, the sun god, um, was the most powerful supreme divinity deity uh, of that time period. Isis was 
wishful and wanted to have the exact same power as Ra. So Ra, on his daily travels from east to west, he being the sun god, would travel the skies every day. At one point in time, uh, dropped spittle onto the earth. And at that point in time, Isis fled to where the spit had mingled with the earth, and she created this poisonous scorpion. So she now has this poisonous scorpion, and she's using this idea to basically take away the power of Ra, or at least have the equivalent power of Ra. So she puts this scorpion in place, or this poisonous snake, at another point in time when Ra is making his travels. It bites Ra. Ra screams in pain. He's in anguish. He's uh, put on his bed. So he summons all of the deities and so forth. And Isis, of course, shows up. She has no. She pretends to know not what's going on, but her being a powerful healer, uh, carrying the elixir of life and so forth, she offers to uh, heal Ra, but in exchange for Ra, Ra needs to basically give his name to her. So it's there's some back and forth. Um, Ra is trying to get this out of Isis. Isis refuses. Finally, she makes this poison <clears throat> grow in terms of pain and anguish, and he's on Ra's on his deathbed. And at that point in time, Ra communicates the uh, the word of God to her, and then at that point in time, she extracts the poison from Ra. So. There's this idea that there's this opposite. So she's uh, the Mother Earth, she's the healer, she's the powerful magician that can heal, but at the same time, there's a very deceitfulness to her. She's she set this situation up in order for her to become as powerful as, as Ra. So there's it wasn't inherent to her. She had to use her cunningness or her street tricks in order to, to get to a position that was equivalent to the most supreme de- divinity of the Egyptian uh, mythology. so And ac- actually stealing his power, so a bit of a trickster, blackmailer, um, and a bit of a fraud. And I, I think that's a perfect allegory that you outlined there from the published mythical accounts because mm-hmm. of what we can see. We see a supposed terrorist group named ISIS. I'm here to tell you it's nonsense. I don't buy any of it. Um, in my view, most human beings are like most human beings. They're not bloodthirsty. They don't want to go killing people. Um, but that sets aside what we can deduce from the nonsense our governments and media have shown us about the supposed group ISIS. Now, if we take the name ISIS that was assigned them, and then, of course, Barack turned it into ISIL, and then at some point it becomes is or ICE or whatever the hell that would be, um, what we're looking at is deception, is fraud. Um, and again, it is a bit like tipping your hand temporarily to show what was previously hidden almost in a way where it's being done like we showed those stupid monkeys but the stupid monkeys couldn't catch on so we're vindicated we can do whatever the hell we want we tried to tell them um, but they're just too dumb so they get what they get Um, that's kind of what's going on here every time we see the modern use of isis there's a couple things I saw uh, just out of that little story. Uh, one of them is that Ra's described as being old and frail. Mm-hmm. It seems that these Egyptian gods seem awfully human to me. You know, like the current concept, if, if you want to go with like the modern Christian and all that, you know, the, these are immortal beings or omnipotent, omniscient, that kind of concept. These these seem very human that uh, that they could be poisoned and, and possibly die. Uh, that's the first thing that jumped out at me. Another one is uh, Isis in this story seems to be very comparable to Circe's, which uh, is where we get the whole name of church from. Well, I was going to say, Jason, it's an interesting thing you're pointing out because we can take any, any nearly any piece of Greek myth and they're petty. The gods are petty. Um, they're jealous. They're doing things to people because they're jealous or because they're upset um, for egotistical reasons. And one thing that always struck me, because when I was a kid, 
I was very interested in Greek mythology, and uh, my father being a college professor, of course, he fed me books. Um, you know, that's what college professors do. And what I noticed was there are many accounts of the Greek myth where the idea is, like you'll hear Zeus, I think it's Zeus in some accounts, I can't remember exactly, but one of the major gods is basically stating, well, you know, we're here, we're omnipotent, we're gods, as long as the humans believe in us. You know, we could all go away here tomorrow if those humans, those dumb little monkeys down there quit believing in us. And I think that's a very key thing to bear in mind um, about all these myths that we get, particularly if we're going to look at something like Greek myth. You've got to realize that every planet out there is rooted in what I'm talking about. And these are non-existent mythical imaginary things that every planet, that many comets, that many things in what we call space are named after. Mm-hmm. So there's there's two more cents to throw into the pot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one other item, too, with ISIS that maybe people could think of, the idea of ISIS, um, you know, if you go off of Plutarch's account, you know, this is after the fact that she and her sister resurrected Osiris, and then they um, had intercourse and gave birth to Horus. There's a story where Isis is taking Horus um, in protection and concern of Satyr Typhon, the evil brother of Osiris that had initially killed Osiris, uh, goes to like a village. These seven scorpions are whether they're all magical. Uh, she goes to an Egyptian abode, looks for safety. This woman turns her away. One of these scorpions in turn bites this woman and uh, makes her ill. And of course, Isis you know, primarily was responsible for that, but again, she's comes to the rescue later on. So it's this idea that yes, she's got a lot of power, but at the same time, she's very opportunistic. She's setting things up to make herself appear to be the supreme power. So again, going back to just smoke, mirrors, and fraud, which uh, we'll get into a little bit later as well. And just to make it clear, um, when we're talking about the brother of, I think it's Osiris, that's analogous with Set, right? That's what most people would relate it to. Yeah, said or uh, a lot of people refer to it as Typhon. Typhon yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, just so people are clear, Set and Typhon um, is interchangeable in this conversation. Anyhow, Jason, you want to keep pushing down the road? Yeah, the last thing I want to point out in that is as a concept that gets uh, recycled through hundreds of years, really, and that's the the concept of the power of of, of name. Ra gives Isis his true name, and therefore Isis has uh, the power to command. Something mm-hmm. that's that's you see through lots of spiritual uh, mythos and all that. So anyway, I, I just thought that was very interesting considering how old that tale is supposed to be and how much that would have been recycled through other concepts. But moving on, um, the main purpose of the mission is stated by the ESA as to study the early beginnings of the solar system. One of the concepts being explored is the notion of panspermia. And there's a lot to this behind what the concept of panspermia is. Uh, It's a derivative of the Greek word meaning seeds everywhere. The 1906 definition is the name for a system through which germs are disseminated in all parts of the earth and of space which surrounds it, developing themselves when they encounter bodies fitted to retain and make them grow, and increasing only when they contain all organic resemblance to that into which they are introduced. The current cosmological definition is the seeds responsible for life on earth that exist everywhere in the universe and propagate to different planets throughout space and life. The seeds would hypothetically be distributed by meteoroids, asteroids, comets, planetoids, and by possibly spacecraft and contaminate various environments that possibly sustain life. So it's this concept basically that life may have come from somewhere else and gets spread around the universe. 
well, we were taught this in school, some of us that are old enough. This is the idea, panspermia, that bolsters um, how we got here. Well, of course, a comet came. That's what was filling the oceans, I guess, and bringing these this soup of, you know, the building blocks for life. But, you know, every time I hear this panspermia thing, and we talked about it a little bit while we were offline trying to kind of determine why this is being echoed, and I know James is going to get in on this, but... Um, if I'm not mistaken, I hope I don't butcher this because I didn't look it up, but as I was listening to you, it reminded me of, I think, one of the guys who claims to have discovered the double helix, I hope I have this right, um, something to do with DNA, claimed that for evolution to explain how we got here and how all the living beings around us are here, it would have to be analogous to a hurricane going through a junkyard and the result of that being a fully functioning jumbo jet. Um and I've always remembered that because I don't accept for a second um, the whole idea of the Big Bang and all this other nonsense. In some ways, I think maybe part of what PM Spermia is about, now that I've been thinking about it a while, is bolstering their argument that, um, you know, well, it fell from the sky. That's how we got the building box of life. Um, anyhow, I know James has quite a bit on this. Uh, definitely. I, You know, we could... From a very high level, this idea of panspermia, as Jason had said, it had originated in ancient Greece with uh, the philosopher um, Anna. Uh, I'm going to butcher this too. Anna Axagoras in the 15th century BC, um, and then it seems to have caught on in the mid 19th century and has spread like wildfire ever since. And the reason we are bringing up this panspermia again is that these missions, Rosetta Philae. Uh, Osiris Rex, I mean, their intent is to basically prove this theory. These things are going to these comets, these asteroids. They're accumulating data, they're sampling data, and it's the idea that these comets in their nucleus are carrying microorganisms, proteins, amino acids, uh, etc. Um, it's an idea that is stating that our solar system is 4.6 billion years old and that these asteroids and these comets were there at the onset of our solar system. So it's a very specific um, mission statement, I should say. It's a very specific theory. It's stating that the solar system as we know it, or at least that which, what has been taught to us, is a very discrete age. It's 4.6 billion years old, and that the agenda now is the construct of panspermia, the idea that life is being generated from these comets that are flying throughout space. So, um, in case anybody's wondering, that's why we're moving into Panspiria. There's an there appears to be an end game to all of this, and this is more or less just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, when we when, when we were offline, we were all discussing, you know, what could be behind panspermia. And I don't think any of us took time to break down the word itself. Of course, pan's in there. Um, if you take it from the 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 mythological standpoint, you might have a road to travel for a while, but. Um, it looks like it's a Masonic echoing um, in a lot of ways, but clearly it's bolstering the old textbook, what you learned in junior high school um, at its base. But what were you about to say, Jason? Oh, uh, the mainstream model, just so uh, we can get this out here, would propose that there's two sources that uh, they would be trying to mine this this knowledge from, and that would be that there's an asteroid belt in between Mars and Jupiter – and that's one place that there would be these remnants, and the other one would be the Oort cloud that's supposed to be on the outskirts of our solar system, which is where the comets are supposed to come from. So so I can put that into context for folks, and I have a clip up on this as well. It's one of the Pluto fraud missions when they claimed they were going by Pluto. Um, while I was doing the research um, to prove that Pluto doesn't exist, 
there's a light in the sky they call Pluto. It's the dimmest damn thing you'll ever see, even through a telescope. It's so dim, you're not even sure you're looking at the right thing unless you have tracking and ID with your scope. But um, as I was looking at the naming of things, because as I say so often, words have meaning, uh, the supposed asteroid belt was one of the reasons it was claimed that Pluto was demoted. Um, in the asteroid belt, they are telling us, which is all nonsense from my point of view, there were two objects at least two objects that were apparently supposedly bigger than Pluto, which was another good reason to demote it to a dwarf planet. But here's the rub. I'm going to tell you the name of the two objects in the supposed asteroid belt, and you should instantly understand what you're looking at. One of them was Santa Claus. The other one was Easter Bunny. <laughs> at, the yeah. Yeah. at the time, I asked, is science a serious endeavor? Is space exploration a serious endeavor? Because if it is a serious endeavor, things do not get named Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. And there's really no reconciling it. I suppose they could come along and try to claim that these objects were discovered around Christmas and discovered around, but it's all nonsense. But you see, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Because if you take their imaginary solar system model and start way the heck out there of Pluto and imagine yourself back through the planets, every single one of them is named Santa Claus or Easter Bunny if you consider what they are named. We're looking at Jupiter. We're looking at Mercury. We're looking at Venus. These are not real personages that ever existed anywhere. They're ideas, they're concepts, in a way they're spells. Um, look at the, the spells that have been cast on the back of the naming of these objects in the same way that Santa Claus is a spell. I mean, for crying out loud, every December, we, we all lie to our kids. That's part of the spell. Tell them that this thing that doesn't exist does exist. Then we get them to buy into this whole unhealthy buy, 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 give me stuff, give me stuff, reward me for believing in the lie. And it goes on and on and on. But I wanted to get that in there because the idea that there's an orc cloud or the idea that there's an astro uh, an asteroid belt, or the idea that there is a solar system out there that we can put any faith in is complete nonsense. Because the moment you begin to challenge it, you understand that, first of all, your information came from liars. They've been proved liars on such massive lies that there's really no accepting anything. And I just want to make that abundantly clear, and the Rosetta mission is no different. But anyhow, Jason, did I step on you again this time with no, my big mouth? No, that's fine. Um to, to go through the rest of the panspermia, there's three types. There's lithopanspermia, which is interstellar panspermia, expelled debris from a planet's surface created by some type of impact that serves to transfer biological material from one solar system to another solar system. There's ballistic panspermia, interplanetary panspermia, expelled debris from a planet's surface created by some type of impact. That seems like it's the same thing. No, it's the same thing. It just uh, goes from planet to planet within the same solar system. Oh, I got you. Okay. <laughs> different taxi. <laughs> different different taxi. Yeah, okay. All yeah. Right. Yep. And then the last one would be directed panspermia, the intentional spreading of life by some advanced extraterrestrial biological system or entity. You know, I, I almost got to ask now that I'm looking at the word and breaking it down and thinking about Pam and, and thinking about the root of the word sperm and knowing the uh, Osiris myth where the one thing they can't find of Osiris is his penis, of course, is what gets lost. Um, and, here, and here we have the sperm idea. Um, I would need to look up really quickly what Pan represented. I think I know, but I, it almost seems like that's got to be an encoded word to me. It definitely. I mean, there's the, the God Pan. Um, I, I've done a little bit of research on that. That's very old, very ancient, very uh, 
you know, that's one of those older deities that people think Christianity converted into the idea of Satan and so forth. Yeah, Pan, Bacchus, Saturnalia, like all those kind of concepts, they all kind of get wrapped up into one another. They do, yep. So so if we go to Wicca, I'll feed you anything, um, what they tell us is Pan is the god of the wild shepherds, flocks, nature's mountains, wilds, rustic music, companions of nymphs. Okay, I remember that one where he's chasing nymphs and they're turning into reeds or something. Uh, his name originates within the ancient Greek language from the word pain, or P-A-E-I-N, which means goat. Okay, now we're getting a little closer to the truth, aren't we? Um, anytime the kid shows up, we know what we're looking at. Um, it's the idea of the devil or Satan or, you know, any number of things. And then it goes on to say that it's also relatable to the fawn or the satyr. Um, so there, oh, here's another thing. His, home, his, his homeland is rustic Arcadia. I think that's another show before we start getting into Arcadia. But anyhow, there's Pan. Um, at some point, we should look at Pamspermia and try to break it down a little more clearly because I just didn't have time before we did this. Um, you want to try to fit a little bit more in here, Jason? Yeah, well, as far as a history of how panspermia came about, like an evolution of it, again, this Anaxagoras in 5th century BC um, seemed to have initially been thinking about these concepts. But then we get up to Johns Jacob Berzelius, born August 20th, 1779, who was a documented Freemason. Uh, he was at the Yale University Secret Society, founded in 1848 after him. <laughs> All right. Yeah, he actually, there was a secret society, I guess, at Yale that uh, was founded after him in 1848. Don't know what that entails. I don't run around with a whole lot of Yale graduates in my social circles, but um, I wonder, it's one no, you don't... Hey, I wonder if it has anything to do with goats and sperm. <laughs> <laughs> no, Very I'm well. A, I'm making a joke. Yeah. Uh, he was a Swedish chemist who documented that carbon compounds were found in meteorites that had, quote unquote, fallen from the heavens. So there's the, the notion that... Uh, these building blocks could possibly be in objects that come from the sky. Next up, we have Hermann E. Richter, a German physicist at Dresden who uh, was influenced by Flammarion's popularization of the panspermia concept. French astronomer Camille Flammarion's book, The Plura Plurality of Inhabited Worlds. Later founded the French Astronomical Society and writer of early science fiction novels. <laughs> there it is. There we are. And famous for woodcut, woodcut with Pilgrim breaching the firmament to witness the hidden workings of the universe. In 1865, he speculated that not all meteors crashed to Earth. Some might hit our atmosphere at a unique angle, picking, pick up living cells in the Earth's atmosphere and return to outer space. Uh, bounced comets could create life on other planets which is very interesting, and a quote, the infinite space is filled with or contains growing, mature, and dying celestial bodies. By mature worlds, we understand those which are capable of sustaining organic life. We regard the existence of organic life in the universe as eternal. Life has always been there. It has always propagated itself in the shape of living organisms from cells and from individuals composed of cells. You know, it's a bit ironic, Jason, um, that you're talking about, who is it here? Uh, I guess it's Richter, the guy you just mentioned, who mm -hmm. did the woodcut, the woodcut that everyone's seen where the guy's kind of like poking his head out of the shell. Um, you know, like there's a dome over a flat earth and he's poking his head out to see what's beyond. Um, and then they go on to talk about the idea of, of transpermia or panspermia. And by the way, I think I've started to break down that word a little bit, but you see, this is the problem. In the same way that I, I constantly state that I think it is very likely nothing comes into our atmosphere from what is called space, that there is a hard, fast boundary. In the same way, nothing leaves our atmosphere, not machines, not people, not nothing. Um, so the idea of panspermia could be further you know, hiding 
um, the truth of a possible boundary between our atmosphere and and what we call space. But just to quickly get this in, um, I'm almost certain now that I've, I've been looking at the panspermia as a word and breaking it down and looking up a few things as you were going along. I think it has directly to do with goat and sperm. And remember that we call our children kids and kids are baby goats, aren't they? Um, so I think there's that idea built into all that. Um, Jason, we're Oh, no, actually, we're not. We've got a few more minutes before we get to the top of the hour. You want to keep pushing through? Yeah, we got one more person in the whole evolution of the panspermia concept, and that's William Thompson, a.k.a. Lord Kelvin. He was uh, first Baron Kelvin, born June 26, 1824, graduate of the University of Glasgow, Scotland, uh, was a mathematical physicist and engineer. He was knighted by the Queen in 1866 by Queen Victoria. Ennobled in 1892 in recognition of his contributions to thermodynamics and to his opposition of Irish home rule and became Baron Kelvin. He's named after the River Kelvin. Later elevated to the House of Lords. Served as vice chairman of the board of the British company Kodak Limited, which is affiliated with Eastman Kodak. You know, the camera people. And a quote from him, Should the time come when this earth comes into collision with another body, many great and small fragments carrying seeds of living plants and animals would undoubtedly be scattered through space. Due to the abundance of many worlds besides our own, we must regard it as probable in the highest degree that there are countless seed-bearing meteoric stones moving through space. And it makes no difference that near the sun they would fry or freeze to death in the vacuum of space. Um, I, I mean, it goes on and on, doesn't it? You know, this poor guy was knighted. I guess he gave up all his days for the queen. Um, you know, the, these ideas, the, the more we go through this, um, the view that I take personally, um, and I'm suggesting everyone challenges these things on their own, is that everything we're talking about here is put in place to obscure a truth they do not want us to know. If anything I've said about space possibly being liquid is correct, if anything I've said about a boundary between what we call space and low Earth orbit is correct, all these ideas that we're talking about would fly in the face of reality. So there's that idea. The problem here is, is I can't prove, certainly, whether or not space is liquid. I can give some pretty good evidence. I can give some pretty good experience and some experiential learning to put these things forth, but I cannot prove it outright. I have no way that I'm aware of to prove it outright. In the same way, I can't absolutely prove that there's a barrier up there that nobody gets through. But again, if anything is correct about those two things, this is all cover story. It is. It is. Now, before we get to the top of the hour, let's point out the fact that the reason why we're going through who these people are and what they were doing, they always have ties back to the aristocracy and, and the royal families and all that. And we know damn well that these people are working against us. They're, they're the ones who are propagating the majority of the bullcrap that gets put out that everyone believes in. So these people having all these titles and, and involved with all these secret societies and all that, that should tell you a whole lot, folks. That's right. And none of them are carrying the straw man identity, are they? So they are participating in the corporation in ways that we are not, which means freedom and wealth, basically um, freedom to do whatever the hell they want. But before we do get to the top of the hour, I want to do something a little different that, that we haven't done before. And I want to ask your guys's take. You know, we started talking about the Rosetta Philae mission and I'll state for the record. I don't know if I did. Philae also relates to a horse. Um, some investigators on YouTube pointed that out straight away. But the 67P comet, which I have called fraud, um, I just want a true assessment of, of where you guys were at with the with the mission. Um, 
James, what's your take? Is it possible any portion of it is true? Is it, I mean, in general, what's your take? I mean, I'm not a uh, astronomical physicist or a theoretician, you know. When I broke this thing down, I, you know, maybe this stuff's plausible. There's part of me that really wants to believe this thing is plausible. But when you look at the official timeline and you see a statement, for instance, the one that really kind of made me question all of this was, uh, it was in 2014, the official quote is that Rosetta performs a series of complex maneuvers to reduce distance between the craft and the comet from 20 million kilometers to 100 kilometers. I mean, that that to me just is, um, and again, I'm not scientifically trained, but it just seems mind-boggling that you can put this little mm-hmm. tiny craft that's remote-controlled into outer space, and you can cut a distance down like that with the speeds that these things are going. Um, so... You know, again, part of me really wants to believe that this happened, that this stuff's all legitimate. But at this point in time, I would have to say it. And given all the ISIS stuff that we're going to cover an hour or two, I mean, it appears to be fraud. Well, let, let me put that into context real quick. And I'm going to be drawing on memory, but I believe we were told that the comet was traveling something like 84,000 miles an hour. I believe that we were further told. Do you know the distance that we were told, James? Do you remember off the top of your head? Uh, I don't know what the initial distance was. No, is it like three hundred million miles or something like that? It, it was. It was. It was big numbers like that. I'm not even going to quote one because I would just be guessing at this point. But at the time, I did the calculation to figure out how long a radio transmission would take to get there. And if I remember correctly, it was like twenty four, twenty five minutes. So what they're saying is they took this little craft that's got its own speed and things going on with it. And they aimed it at a thing traveling 84,000 miles away. And when, when they went to go do the landing, they had to wait something like 25 minutes for a command to reach it. When you begin to logically break it down for me, I just can't accept it. But I'm going to ask you the same thing, Jason. Where are you at with these things? And I'll, I'll tell you flat out. Um, the moment I started the research and got the 9-11 date, which seems to be purposely being obscured now or distanced from the actual discovery date of this supposed Definitely. comet, um, when I predicted from experience, understanding this is the game that gets played over and over, that a view of the comet would match the Philae Island, which they had no way to, to match those two things up by their own story. Um, that's really when there was no going back for me. But Jason, where are you with this whole Rosetta Philae thing, the, the 67P? What, what are your feelings on it? Well, with all these things, I always try and look at it very objectively. You know, and I, I it's the same thing I did with the space fraud, and and what I keep finding now, that, especially now that I've done so much looking into the, into space fraud, I just keep seeing the same signs popping up over and over and over again. I want to believe right. that mankind is doing these wonderful, amazing things, and maybe there's there's they are doing things that we aren't shown, which is one theory I've always held is that there's things going on out there that they don't want us to see, so they feed us a bunch of crap, uh, and you know that that's a logical assessment, you know there. But as far as what we're shown from this, again, it doesn't make sense. And as soon as I started looking at this one in particular, uh, there's a bunch of stuff that just doesn't make sense. Like you just named one of the big ones is the commands. I don't know if it's 24 minutes round trip or if it's one-way radio transmission. But if they're giving commands to something traveling at at these insane uh, speeds, that would mean it's an almost hour round trip to get a command and get data back. So it just doesn't seem likely, you know? No, I think it's one way, if I remember, and I could be wrong. I would have to go back and look at my own clip because um, I, I looked at a number of people who did the math to back up what I was thinking. I think I initially came up with something like 23 minutes or something, but I think the accepted uh, roundabout was something like 25 minutes one way. But again, I would have to go look that up. Um, here, here's my issue. In the same way, Jason, that you have spent so much time on the space fraud with me um, is exactly the experiential 
education that I needed to make the prediction um, that they were going to show us a view of the comet that matched the the Philae Island. But there was a whole other part that I didn't really cover very well in that video where on the island, like if you go look up at the maps that are supposed to look old of Philae Island and the Isis temple has a letter like J or C, um, mm -hmm. later on they did the same thing on the comet. They put out, I think, J and C were the two landing sites on the comet they had picked. And they were, in, the, yep. in, the, yeah, in the video, I think I remember saying that, oh, and by the way, it gets to the comet on September 10th. So if you play the Greenwich Mean Time Dateline game, you can almost certainly say that they claimed the comet was discovered on September 11th, and then it got there to orbit the comet on September 11th. I didn't look very carefully at how they may have played the date game to, to say September 10th, but it would not surprise me in the least that without too much effort or time zones, you could easily show it to be September 11th. But on the comet, the physical comet they're claiming they're landing on, the physical comet that doesn't exist that they claim they're land on, they also had like a J, a, you know, these these landing zones. And at the time, I said, it would not surprise me if someone took the time to line them up that one of the landing zones they tried was the ISIS temple. And I never did that. But the reason I'm mentioning it is because I knew these things from experience in the same way Jason starts to see the same fingerprints on all these things over and over and over and over. And we could even set aside the whole Egyptian Osiris Isis thing. I, I mean, if I hear Isis another 10 times in my life, I'm going to think about permanently plugging my ears. That's how common it has become in our modern construct. But I just wanted to ask to see where people are at. And, you know, all of us are different. A lot of us want to hold off from calling wholesale fraud. I'm not one of those people, fortunately. <laughs> but I noticed Jason, you know, he, he, he sees the problems, but he hedges. And I know that I put myself out there when I flat out say this is fraud, but I, I just can't escape it. Um, I'm predicting things. I'm seeing the same things over and over and over. And then when you logically try to break down the speeds and distances and all these other things, and then on top of it, you start to find objects named Santa Claus and, you know, Easter Bunny, a picture that applies to our whole solar system model is reiterated over and over and over. But anyhow, that does bring us to the top of the first hour. Uh, James, is there anything you'd like to add to the first hour before we go to break? Uh, no, I think uh, we're in pretty good shape to really get uh, down to the details on this mission. All right, Jason, anything you want to add to the first hour before we go to break? Well, in hour two, we're going to break down the actual dates and times of all the things of the mission and all that. So we could pick it apart and see what significance that is going to be at different times during this supposed mission. Right. And, and I think we're going to be doing some more ISIS work too. Is that correct? Uh, definitely. We're going to see uh, shapes, figures of this comet and different spatial uh, taken when, when they take a picture of it, it's in different uh, positions and it looks like different various symbols and so forth. It's uh, fascinating. It's really interesting <clears throat> to break this stuff down. There's also a couple other places that uh, did very similar things to what, what Crow was saying, breaking down and tearing it apart and, and pointing out the, uh, the inconsistency. So I'm going to go through two of those as well. Excellent. Well, there, there's a whole other part that, that I cover in my clip a little bit where supposedly 250 nations come across to rename some portion of the mission. And, of course, they come up with Agalkia. Like 20, 250 nations are going to yeah. vote for a name like Agiochia. And of course, that relates directly to the moving of the temples because of flooding that they did with dams. Um, yes. it, it's all beyond the pale. And that sets aside the things like Binu, the stork, which I know you're going to talk about. Um, but 
for those that haven't seen the clip that I put on YouTube before I go to break for the top of the first hour here, you should go look at what a comet is, what the word comet means, and I'll cut to the chase. It basically means hair. There's different versions of how that is set up, but it basically means human hair in one way, shape, or form, often female. But the very top of a comet, the glowing head, not the tail part, is called a coma. Words have meaning. Now, you can look up the word coma. I believe you will find a relationship to hair within the etymology of that word, but you will also find a typical meaning for coma, which is basically to be unconscious or asleep. And I would urge all people to understand what we're talking about, all these names that are assigned to them, all these you know, tricky names like Osiris Rex and these names that are made from acronyms, they're all put together for a reason. They all have a meaning. And at the base of talking about comets, we can know the main portion of a comet is called a coma. And that should make you think. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the first hour for Crow 777 Radio Podcast, episode 49. We're going to take a break. I hope to see everyone over at Crow777Radio.com. Oh, and before I forget, the new website will either launch this week or next week. Very, very, very likely this will happen. Um, and for members, you may see a page get posted that says something to the effect new new site launching, and it'll take an hour or two to do so, and you'll be able to log into the new site. Anyhow, hope to see everyone over at Crow777Radio.com. Uh, the second hour will be there for members. Cheers. Cheers. 